The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. It's a real pleasure to welcome Jan Quant, uh, CEO at uh, Screen Dragon, to our podcast today. Welcome, Jan. Good afternoon, Gary. So a quick uh, bit of background on Jan and on Screen Dragon. Screen Dragon is a project and process management software provider that simplifies and speeds how work gets done, making the complex simple. A great strap line there. <laughs> Jan, and once again, thanks for joining us. So in today's podcast, we're going to focus on two key topics. Firstly, breaking into the US market and how UK and European enterprise software startups can crack that very important market. And secondly, customer centricity, delighting your customers and using customer revenues instead of institutional funding to scale up the business. <laughs> that's, that's great. Uh, I think it's called the non-dilutive funding. It's a, a very unfashionable way of uh, funding your business, but uh, hopefully uh, I can add a little something to that uh, to that subject matter. A dedicated follower of fashion. Great. Okay. So just some background on you first, Jan. Um, where were sure. you born and where did you go to college? Wow. Gosh, that seems like a while ago now, but... Um, I'm a heavily anglicised Dutchman, Gary. I uh, have two Dutch parents, but have lived my whole life in the UK. So uh, I don't sound very Dutch anymore. You know, I don't speak like Steve McLaren. I have uh, <laughs> very much uh, uh, culturally and, and lang- linguistically uh, kind of uh, adopted uh, the UK as my home. And um, had my education here in England and uh, ended up at uh, what was then called UMIST. It was the University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology, where I did a degree in, well, initially started doing maths and management sciences and then ended up just doing management sciences, uh, which was then part of the Manchester Business School. And then uh, Following that, did a few extra uh, courses in sort of uh, ACCA uh, accounting and then uh, rounded my education off with an MBA, which I did sort of part-time whilst I had a young family at the Kingston Business School. So that's my education timeline. Okay. And then, and then you started out in terms of your career timeline. You started yes. out in finance when you joined Screen Dragon, you were originally in finance and operations. So I'm intrigued. How did you become CEO? So basically, I had, uh, as you probably heard from my education, a sort of a finance background. I actually started my career in the music industry. So um, spent a good 10 years there, kind of helping artists uh, collect royalties and and work with uh, international agencies collecting royalties on behalf of uh, of artists and uh, and uh, record companies and the like, and then took that sort of expertise into the domain of um, software, which um, when I first joined with Screen Dragon was really around how to understanding you know monetizing IP. The transition from sort of um, finance and operations director through to CEO was back in uh, in the early. Uh, decade uh, 2010 I think I can't even remember my own timeline but um, no it was uh, it was kind of time to pick up the reins I'd been working with a colleague of mine at the time and uh, you know it was time to sort of uh, 
take that on. So that was um, that was back then. It was uh, a time of transition, but uh, all for the better, I think, or I hope. I'm fascinated by your very early breakthrough into the U.S. market. So mm. why did you decide to focus on, on the U.S. so early? Um, I think it, uh, there are a number of factors, really. But uh, I think if you're going to make any generalizations about Americans uh, as a market, is they are open to trying new things. So uh, when you're a software vendor trying to define a market, uh, you know, be part of an emerging wave of, of new vendors in, in an emerging marketplace, uh, you'll probably find that Americans are more likely to give something a go. So it was very natural for us to sort of uh, position our, our business proposition to American clients. I think in addition to that, they're also very, what I would call sort of command and control centric and um, the values of the software that we provide was really about providing better consistency, better clarity for international marketing teams. So um, often, you know, new new campaign ideas, new brand ideas are developed uh, at HQ. If you take, for example, Procter & Gamble, their headquarters in Cincinnati, and they're very keen to sort of um, distribute that sort of marketing know-how across the globe. They call it a, a single moment of truth is, uh, is really what the customer experiences when they engage with Procter & Gamble brands. And they're very keen on that. So it's a combination of sort of their propensity to, to try things new, give things a go, uh, but also I think um, their desire to sort of have a good tight control on, on how the business is run globally, not just uh, within one territory. Great. Okay. So for those who want to, to try the innovators, the US mm. market is the, is the way to go. So in terms of sales and marketing, you've taken a very innovative and assertive approach. In terms of funding, as we talked about earlier on, mm. you've taken what I was going to term an unconventional approach. You, you talked <laughs> about it being an unfashionable approach. Funding growth through revenue. So tell us about your philosophy on funding business growth. Well, I think, uh, you know, I think every business wants to build a sustainable business. And, you know, you sustain your business fundamentally with customers. And therefore, it's good to understand what exact what is it the customer wants? What is it the customer's uh, needs in terms of solving the business problems that they are facing? And therefore, you know, not to be customer-centric or putting the customer first, I think you run the danger of sort of developing your business proposition or your product a little bit in an ivory tower. You kind of, uh, you could be convincing yourselves that uh, what you're doing is is fantastic and uh, it's only a question of when we get a chance to launch to the market, that it's just going to be a blinding success. I think, uh, you know, product uh, strategies or business strategies are way more adaptive than that. You need to be more, more responsive to sort of customer needs and, and, and solve real business problems. It, it may take a little longer. And, uh, you know, there are undoubtedly cases of companies that have been very successful in developing their proposition, you know, uh, in the laboratory, if you like, and then uh, bringing it to market. And that's exactly what the market needs. I mean, I think Steve Jobs introducing, uh, you know, the the tablet, uh, well, it wasn't a new concept, but, uh, you know, their version 
you know, just suddenly redefine how people sort of access uh, the internet or or, or browse, uh, you know, uh, content or whatever it might be on social media. It just uh, suddenly uh, the tablet mobility you know, was was became a huge thing that you know uh, the market responded to enormously. But I'd say that's pretty rare. I think um, most businesses that sort of evolve successfully do so very much in conjunction, in collaboration with their customers. Any regrets at all about not expanding more quickly via VC or, or other institutional funding? As the French say, je ne regrette rien. I think it's a case of, you know, I, I don't live uh, my day with uh, too many regrets. I'm sure we've made mistakes on the way. I'm sure uh, with a perfect crystal ball, there would have been a perfect way to grow and build our business quicker. But, um, you know, um, business is a messy, messy thing. I think there are many forks in the road. And, and I think sometimes it's better to sort of drive, drive forward with purpose, even though the direction that you're going might be a little bit askew from the optimum navigational direction, because what is absolutely certain is that you're going to hit another fork in the road you know, further down the line, and you can readjust your compass, if you like, uh, accordingly. So um, no regrets. Um, I think uh, there is always a good time and a place to sort of uh, consider investment. Uh, but I would hesitate to sort of recommend that that's very much at the, the seed uh, and pre-startup phase. You know, I think um, validate your business, you know, validate the marketplace with real customer dollars. And uh, it's easier said than done. You know, sometimes you literally have to sort of uh, live off, uh, off fresh air if you uh, are self-funded. But um, I think it's, uh, it's all the more satisfactory uh, when, when you get through that initial first hurdle of setting up a business. It's much better for the, for the funding community as well. You know, they can, they can enter in at a, at, a, at a stage when the business has been significantly de-risked. I think it's, uh, it should be a win-win for everyone. Which I guess, in a way, is where your business is now. So if a, if a VC or a private equity firm were to approach you with, say, $20 million to invest in your business, would you happily take that meeting? I would always take the meeting. I think uh, it, it's, uh, it's always interesting to hear uh, if somebody is kind and considerate enough to say that that's what they're interested in, in supporting and finding out more. And equally, I would uh, want to do the same. I think it is always the case, and this is not nothing new. But uh, you know, money is not just is necessarily the the only solution to, uh, to to growing your business. You know, you need talent, expertise, lots of sort of well networked uh, individuals, partners, all these sorts of things. That fundamentally, money doesn't necessarily buy you. It may just provide you time fundamentally to sort of work these things out. So. Um, it's sort of it's not simply about the size of the check uh, that matters. I think for, for businesses uh, that are at our stage, it's really around all the um, the network benefits, the contacts, the uh, you know the the the, the possibilities, uh, the synergies, if you like, of working with with partners or people that bring more than just uh, their checkbook. So, what's been the toughest challenge that you and your team have had to overcome to scale your business? I think it is uh, it it is fundamentally uh, operating you know two uh, limited uh, resources that may sound like hey that can be easily solved with money but um, as I said it's not necessarily uh, the only solution I think um, 
you know, sometimes you need to just um, work things through uh, in, in their sort of organic timeline. So, you know, I think uh, our biggest challenges going forward certainly are, you know, really ones around optimizing the opportunity that we've built uh, and, you know, building on the successes that we've achieved to date. Um, you know, scaling is a different, uh, is a different challenge to sort of uh, starting up. Uh, so I would say that, you know, we've overcome all our challenges to date. It would be hard for me to remember what the most <laughs> Difficult one was, there have been so many, they, they all blur into one really. But uh, it's a great feeling when you get to the point where you've sort of, you've got significant traction, money in the bank, customers, uh, recurring revenues, all these things, uh, you know, you should never forget, you know, you should um, wake up every day and, and know that you've got a good thing going and that uh, really it's about trying to build on that. And that's really, uh, that, that's our challenge going forward. That's your challenge going forward. So what, what do the next three years look like for you and the team at Screen Dragon as you continue to scale the business? I think, you know, it's, it's, it looks like a, a very exciting time. I'm, I'm really very optimistic about, uh, about our future. Um, I think, like I said, it's, it's, we, we know we've kind of built the foundations of a great, you know, let's call it 25-story building. And, um, we're ready to sort of build those additional floors on top of the great foundations we have. The next, uh, you know, three years or so will be all about sort of you know, driving the commercial proposition of the business. And um, that could be by working with uh, strategic partners. It could be about building out our, uh, our, our organic sales efforts uh, in other territories. You know, we really see that as, uh, as, as a key uh, driver for the next uh, next uh, you know 18 to 24 months is really to sort of scale on our commercial efforts i would say uh, that uh, just on the point about uh, you know building out sales operations overseas i think it's um it's always been our philosophy that um, you know software can be served delivered and sold fundamentally via the internet you know enterprise software is is a tricky thing. It is a consultative sell, and uh, undoubtedly, you need to spend time understanding what your what your um, what your customers' needs are. But um, I think uh, you know the days of having to play golf uh, or wine and dine your prospects, uh, as you know many enterprise sales were done in previous decades. I think uh, you know the buyer networks now uh, they're not looking for that necessarily. We we spend time with our customers. But that's really around, uh, as I say, defining uh, exactly what it is that we're, uh, we're we're trying to address, rather than necessarily the um, to build uh, the, the relationship up front. We like to build our relationships with our customers as we go along. You know, we feel that um, they trust us. Uh, we provide a you know a, a, a good uh, reference of, of uh, blue chip customers that. Um, always give us a good reference uh, when we start uh, a business. So, um, you know, our, our investment in our sales cycle is very much uh, in the delivery and, and in the defining of the exact needs that our clients uh, require than necessarily uh, building a rapport from day one. Okay, so you've ditched some of the hospitality events and the, and the golf <laughs> weekends and so on. Well, they're fun from night time to time, but I just, uh, as I said, I think uh, the buyer community have moved on too. You know, procurement is becoming a, a very powerful uh, uh, department in most businesses now, and uh, 
you know, some companies have literally uh, policies around uh, there cannot be seen to be any sort of favours done or any sort of any gifts received, whether uh, that's a you know lunch, dinner, or playing golf. So um, it's it's becoming you know tougher and more businesslike, if you like. Yes, the rise of procurement, not just as a powerful entity, but also as a very very sophisticated entity within uh, mm. enterprise organisations. Huh? Walk me through that. What what are you seeing from the procurement side of things and how have you had to adapt to, to handle that? I think uh, it's probably fair to say we have seen the rise and rise of the procurement department, but I wonder when we're at the point where we're going to start seeing the slight falling of the procurement department. I think um, my feeling is that um, perhaps it's a bit like sort of the, the business strategy of downsizing in the 1980s. It, um, it may improve your numbers in the short term, but it fundamentally eats away at the core of, of business relationships, which, uh, you know, at the end of the day is what, uh, is what drives, uh, you know, better performance in the long run, whether that's through, uh, you know, building up know-how or having uh, sufficient enough uh, people to, to fulfill uh, your growth agenda. And I think procurement, you know, if it's not careful, could could end up uh, sort of uh, you know destroying the vendor community that they work with, and um, you know we've seen a lot of a lot of that uh, tension in the world of sort of uh, you know marketing services and advertising and marketing. It's been well documented that uh, you know marketing procurement of the biggest Fortune 500 companies have been given the agencies of this world uh, uh, you know a very tough time of it and. Um, and I think that uh, you know the, the the worm might turn at some point, and but you know nevertheless uh, they have a job to do, and and often uh, you know like in any negotiation, whether you're uh, you you know you're selling um, goods at the at the at the bazaar in Marrakesh or wherever, you know everyone likes to haggle a little bit and uh, feel that they got a got a little bit back or uh, gained a little something and and that's their job so i don't uh, i don't see a problem in that i just uh, just see that, that it can become a self-fulfilling agenda sometimes and you end up with the cheapest but not necessarily the best value you know i think um, value is not necessarily a, a a function of price alone you know it's uh, it's a function of price and quality and so forth so uh, i think that the days of procurement may be a, a reached peak procurement let's call it that be interesting to see if you're uh, if your forecast on uh, on the demise of procurement comes to fruition. Mm. But getting back to your customers and your actual mm. customers, the users, mm. so how do you stay truly close to your customers and to your users? Yeah, we um, you know as a SaaS product, uh, you know the principle is that you get to a point of being self-serving. You know that. Um, that is the objective that everybody is trying to achieve, both our clients and, and us as vendors. But I guess our approach as a business has always been, I've called it software as a service squared. You know, it's software as a service with additional services. And, uh, you know, you, you could call that sort of uh, fanatical support or 24-7 uh, uh, customer focus. Uh, we, we're very true to that, to that philosophy. And I think it just follows on from the perspective of, um, you know, the, 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 the customer funding the business and so forth. 
you know, we're very focused on on uh, three key stakeholders, but in this order, it would be, uh, you know, our staff who serve our customers, our customers, obviously, uh, who I would say serve our shareholders. And therefore, um, you know, um, as a business, we succeed off the back of happy staff serving happy customers. So, you know, we're always on, we're always at the end of the phone, we're always there uh, to receive any queries from our clients. And, uh, you know, we, we encourage that sort of relationship that it's a, it's a partnership, not just a, a vendor, vendor-buyer relationship, as you can sometimes feel when you buy things by credit card online. It's, uh, that's the end of the story. Well, I really admire your customer-centric approach. It's great, great to hear that. Who do you most admire out there in terms of other enterprise software or SaaS businesses or indeed the, the entrepreneurs who are leading those uh, those organizations? I would probably say that I don't know enough great SaaS companies out there already to be able to name names. Uh, I've met lots of people along the way. I guess uh, <laughs> being so customer focused, I'm, I'm sort of uh, more connected with, with, our, with our client side than I am necessarily our peers. But um, no, there's um, there are lots of companies doing great things uh, out there. Uh, I mean, Screen Dragon has been part of um, a number of uh, kind of networking groups, including sort of like uh, the Mayor's International Business Programme. We've been party to uh, Tech London Advocates, uh, Creative Tech Team. Uh, we were nominated as one of uh, the Creative Tech 50 this year. And uh, I've met some really, really great companies uh, through both of those networks. Uh, you know, UK companies all striving out to do well. So, um, yeah, I can't I can't answer that question with a single name, uh, unfortunately, Gary. But um, there's a lot of great uh, talent and a lot of great businesses uh, operating out of London that um, I'm sure will do great uh, going forward. I agree with that. Very exciting um, startups and scale ups uh, in the uh, enterprise software arena. They say that being a CEO is a truly lonely existence so who do you reach out to for advice and guidance i would honestly say i speak to all my colleagues i think uh that's where i get the best advice uh i would say on a day-to-day basis the reason for that is um you know they're all working very closely with our clients with our partners and so on and so forth and um it doesn't it's not such a lonely place uh, i think um We've always uh, chosen to operate in a very sort of um, a flat and meritocratic environment. Um, uh, and, um, you know, there are, you know, there's always things to, to sort of uh, discuss with, with my colleagues who are all smart people. You know, I get uh, great advice uh, from working with them uh, on a day-to-day basis. I love to read. I'm always a, an avid reader of uh, everything from sort of, you know, trade magazines to the FT to watching the BBC News or whatever. And, um, and I think, I'm, you know, being a, a news junkie, I, you know, I love, love lots of sources of information. I guess um, you feel connected, don't you? You don't necessarily uh, feel like you're operating in isolation. And so many, uh, you know, issues that you may read about in other companies you can kind of identify with or, uh, you know, even... Even the other day, I was talking to another CEO of a, of a software business, and uh, just the, the war stories that uh, that he had, uh, you know, just rang true. It just kind of 
made you realize that uh, you know this isn't uh, a, an isolated place. Everyone is uh, is going through many of the same growth uh, pains and and and, uh, and scaling issues. And um, it's about you know just keeping your ear to the ground. Uh, you know, as I say, tapping into the network, reading widely. Uh, and keeping a, an optimistic demeanour, I think uh, that that helps enormously. Definitely, the uh, optimism is going to go a long way in terms of being a CEO. But just to clarify, have you ever had any uh, external mentors, maybe through those various networking organisations you mentioned? Absolutely, and, and it goes back to the point about you know listening uh, to uh, mentor groups and all the rest. That I, I love hearing stories of. Uh, uh, you know people's achievements and how they got through the tough times and all the rest of it. So yes, I would um, I definitely advocate being part of a wider network, whether that includes you know peer companies or mentors in the network. I, I think it's invaluable. Um, so uh, uh, you know um, that's that's what I would um, definitely advocate to sort of where possible stay connected to uh, to mentor groups and peer networks. Great advice. Well, hopefully the uh, guidance you've given during this conversation will help others to overcome their challenges or indeed inspire others who are just entering the world of uh, the world of tech and the world of being an entrepreneur. So um, thank you so much for joining me and, and sharing your insights on growth and funding and being very customer centric and, and also uh, cracking the US market. I'm sure a lot of other startups and scale-ups in the UK and Europe will be really interested in in your guidance on how to succeed in the States. So um been great chatting to you. Thank you, Gary. You're been a pleasure myself. Enjoyed it. And yeah, it's great. And I'd like to wish you and the whole Screen Dragon team a superb, superb year end and a highly profitable uh, 2018. Thanks very much. Much appreciated. This episode of the Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.